For centuries, the area of Loch Ness has been home to a wide array of supernatural phenomena. Throughout its deep history, the land itself has been home to ancient sacrificial rituals, necromancy, occult summoning rituals, UFO sightings, and most notably, home to a strange creature. Loch Ness is most well known for its famous monster, the alleged long-necked water serpent-like creature, the Loch Ness Monster, or as it's affectionately known, Nessie. The story of the Loch Ness Monster is one that has resided within Scottish folklore for centuries. And just how far back these sightings go may surprise you. The first known recorded sighting of Nessie goes all the way back to the late 5th century and ties into the lore of a man known as Saint Columba, an Irish monk whose mission was to go to what is now Scotland and convert the Picts. The Picts were a group of Celtic peoples who lived in what is now modern-day Scotland. And as a side note, Pict is where the word pixie came from. During the 5th century, Celtic populations were dwindling, growing ever smaller by the year. Much of Celtic territory had been occupied by the Romans, who at this time had adopted Christianity. Now for the Romans, the Celts' pagan way of life was seen as distasteful. So they began campaigns to squash out Celtic culture and convert them. During some time in the late fifth century, the exact date remains a bit of a mystery. An Irish monk known as Colum was sent to live amongst the Picts and convert them. Column was chosen by the Roman church for a very specific reason. Column was of Irish Celtic descent, and more importantly, he came from a high-ranking family. His father was a tribal leader, which in today's terms would be similar to a king. So it was believed by the Roman church that Column would be their best spokesperson. While Colum was making his way through Pict territory, he wasn't exactly welcome. The locals knew why he was there, and they did not want anything to do with him. And while no one ever attempted to harm Colum, no one ever attempted to help him either. He was never offered shelter, drink, or food from the Pict peoples. Colum relied on his wit and survival skills during most of his journey through the land. One day, Colum came upon a group of Picts who were burying a man by the river Ness. Colum approached the group and offered to help with the burial, which, to his surprise, they agreed. As he was helping dig the grave, 
He asked what had happened to the man. The locals told him that the man had been attacked and killed by the Kelpie. In Celtic Pict folklore, it was believed that the River Ness and the Loch Ness area in general was home to the Kelpies. A Kelpie is a water spirit, which in Scottish folklore inhabit lochs and other large bodies of water. Kelpies are known to be fearsome and malevolent creatures who have shape-shifting abilities. They try to entice humans by either taking the form of a magnificent horse or taking the form of a beautiful maiden. However, it's said that when the Kelpie takes the maiden form, it's easily identified for what it is because it still retains those hooves as feet. Every large body of water in what is now Scotland was said to have a Kelpie. But the most famous and the most feared Kelpie was the one that lived in Loch Ness. When Colum learned that this beast had been torturing the residents of this land for centuries, he decided to do something about it. And legend has it that he jumped into the waters and swam into the middle, deepest part. And as if on cue, a large, long, slithering beast charged towards him. And at that moment, Colum raised his hand into the air, said a prayer, and then demanded that the beast retreat back to where it came, never harming another human again. Afterwards, it said that Colum was seen as a hero amongst the people, and he soon went on to become Saint Columba. Now, over the centuries, the story of Colum and the Beast of the Ness turned into nothing more than a fairy tale. And as the years wore on, many began to forget the story altogether, it only being passed down in certain Scottish regions, primarily amongst those who lived near the famous Loch. However, in 1933, that all changed, and soon, the legend of Loch Ness and the beast that lived within it was reborn. It all happened on a late April afternoon in 1933. A Scottish couple was taking a little trip around the Loch Ness, and while they were walking, they spotted something odd off in the distance. It appeared to be some sort of large animal that, in their words, looked like a dragon or prehistoric monster. They said the monster seemed to be rolling and plunging on the surface. Well, soon, word of their strange encounter spread. And soon, Mr. John McKay and his wife were being sought out by the newspapers. One paper that interviewed the couple was the Everness Courier. On May 2nd, 1933, the newspaper published the article in which the animal 
is referred to as the Loch Ness Monster. Well, this article instantly created a media sensation. After this, dozens of reports came rolling in from all sorts of people claiming to have also seen this mysterious creature. Eventually, newspapers in London sent correspondents to Scotland to try to see if they could scout out the monster themselves. And a London circus even offered a 20,000 pound reward to anyone who was able to capture the beast. The McKays soon found themselves as celebrities and they seemed to enjoy the attention. They made media waves again some months later when they reported that they had again seen the animal, this time walking about on land. In December of 1933, the Daily Mail commissioned Marmaduke Wetherill, who was a well-known exotic game hunter, to locate and possibly hunt down the creature. Though Wetherill was unable to spot the beast, he did find and photograph large footprints along the shore, which he believed to belong to the monster. However, it later came out that those footprints were a hoax, which he created using umbrellas of all things. After that, things seemed to die down a bit, but then in 1934, Nessie would become the center of attention once again. In 1934, the Daily Mail received an interesting lead about a supposed photograph of the monster itself. An English physician by the name of Robert Kenneth Wilson had claimed that he had captured a photograph of the beast. The picture featured what looked like some sort of animal, which had a long neck and a small head. This photograph became known as the surgeon's photograph. And once it was published by the Daily Mail, it became an international sensation. However, in 1994, a discovery was made about this famed 1934 photograph, which put a bit of a damper on the whole Nessie story. You see, in 1994, it was discovered that the iconic surgeon's photograph was a hoax. Now that probably should have been the end of Nessie sightings and photographs, but it wasn't. In fact, if anything, it only seemed to cause an increase in them. In fact, every single year, an estimated 400,000 people visit Loch Ness in attempts to capture a picture of Nessie. And every year, numerous new sightings and photographic evidence of Nessie pop up. The longest the public has gone without a Nessie sighting is 18 months. Nessie 
is one of the world's most beloved cryptid legends. Many speculate that Nessie could be a plesiosaur, a marine reptile which was believed to have went extinct during the end of the Cretaceous period, about 65 million years ago. It's a long-necked water creature with four flippers, and everybody seems to agree that this is what Nessie is, if there really is a Nessie. However, there is a whole other aspect to the Nessie story, and it's one that takes a bit of a surprising turn. There are those out there who believe that Nessie is not some sort of cryptid creature at all. Many believe that the monster of Loch Ness has a more supernatural origin. It's believed that this creature was an entity that was summoned to the area by none other than famous occultist Alistair Crowley. And the reason this creature is so elusive is that it doesn't fully exist in our realm. It's a theory that sounds incredibly outlandish and honestly, pretty laughable when you first hear it. But once you learn how Crowley ties into the lore of Loch Ness, it becomes a little easier to think about. You see, it was in the area of Loch Ness where Aleister Crowley performed the dangerous summoning ritual, the Abra Melon. Now the Abra Melon operation, as it's known, is an extensive six month long summoning ritual. And it's touted as being one of the most dangerous that can be performed. The ritual itself, known as the sacred magic of Abramelin the mage, is one that is used to summon one's guardian angel. And it sounds benign enough, but the ritual itself was considered extremely dangerous as it required the summoning and binding of specific demons in order for the practitioner to communicate with their guardian angel or desired spirit. If the ritual isn't carried out exactly, or if the practitioner falters in any way, the consequences can be dire. The practitioner themselves can risk possession, and even worse, can risk the opening of a portal where such negative forces can enter into our world freely, which would in essence curse the land until the portal is closed again. Now the Abramelin ritual is extensive and it comes about in three separate phases. And these phases can take between six to 18 months to complete. The first phase of the ritual was to make contact with one's guardian angel or spirit guide. Many practitioners, including Crowley, believe that one could construct and summon any idealized entity of your choice. 
Now, if the first part of the ritual is carried out properly, the angel or desired entity would communicate with the practitioner. It would offer guidance and instruct them on how to fully manifest this higher source of spiritual power. It would then instruct the practitioner on how to accomplish the second phase of the ritual, instructing them on which demons needed to be called forth and bound. It was this second phase of the ritual that was the most dangerous. If the instructions were not strictly followed in their entirety, or if the practitioner was weak in intention or spirit, the dark forces summoned could take possession of them, driving the person to madness and even death. If these entities were not properly bound, there's the added risk of opening a portal or otherworldly gateway, which can unleash a multitude of entities and interdimensional beings into the area, in effect, cursing the land. If the second phase is completed successfully, then the practitioner would be able to move on to the third and final stage. In this final phase of the ritual, their guardian spirit would manifest in them, granting them a higher and more powerful source of spiritual or magical power. Afterwards, the third book of the Abram Melon could be opened and utilized. This book contains spells and associated sigils, which allow the practitioner to access hidden magical knowledge, such as how to perform shape-shifting, necromancy, divination, and even how to use the dream state to control and alter the future. There are two known translations of the original Abra Mellon, the German translation from the 1600s and the French translation, which was first published in the 1800s. Both versions differ slightly. The German translation states that the ritual should last 18 months, while the French version says the ritual should last six months. Almost all modern mentions and publications of this text are based on the French version, which was famously translated to English by a man called McGregor Mathers. Now, McGregor Mathers was a prominent figurehead of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and for a time, friend and teacher to Aleister Crowley. It was Mathers who faithfully introduced Crowley to Abramelin magic, something which would later become the very foundation for all of Crowley's conjuring endeavors. Crowley had a thirst for spiritual 
or magical power. And as soon as he was introduced to it, he became obsessed with the Abramelin ritual. And he later attempted it multiple times. His first attempt at Abramelin magic happened in 1899, when he was 25 years of age. And though he was young, the ritual was not something that Crowley had impulsively jumped into. In fact, it was something that he had painstakingly planned for years before carrying out. The major hurdle was discovering the perfect location for the ritual. Crowley spent years surveying numerous properties until settling on the right one. There were certain criteria that the property had to meet. It must be relatively secluded, free from disturbance, and it had to have the right type of energy. He was looking for something that he felt resonated with his magical intention. In 1899, Crowley happened upon the Bellaskin House, a sprawling manor on the southeast side of Loch Ness. Now, as soon as he visited the area, Crowley knew that he had at last found the perfect location for his Abramelin ritual. It felt as if it were meant to be, as if it had been waiting, calling out to him, and Crowley purchased it on the spot. Indeed, the location of the house could not have been better, as the lock and the surrounding area has had a dark and mysterious energy about it long before Crowley came about. In fact, Crowley was by no means the first to perform Abramelin magic in the area. It's said that within the walls of the Urquhart Castle, there was an Abramelin temple. There's no exact date as to when this temple may have occurred, but most sources point to the 1600s, shortly after the castle had fallen. Even well before the Bronze Age, the area was known to be home to strange phenomena. The waters of the loch were said to have been home to the Kelpie and all matter of strange water spirits. The area was also home to the she, the fairy folk, and home to the sleigh, known as the unforgiven dead. The she were tricksters at best and could often be slightly malevolent. They were known to lure or kidnap people into the fairy realm and trapping them there for all time. They would then have one of their own shapeshift into an exact replica of that person, replacing the human with one of their own, otherwise known as a changeling. Now the sleigh 
were the spirits of the restless dead, those who were unable to move on to the next realm due to their misdeeds in life. They were known as malevolent beings who were bitter against the living. They would haunt the land in flocks, causing misfortune and destruction in their wake. The slaves spent most of their time roaming the land in search of the dying so that they could snatch up and carry the soul off with them. The dark waters of the Loch Ness have lent it to all matters of strange stories and occurrences. The Bolskin property itself has its own dark past long before it came associated with Aleister Crowley. The property was once home to a church and later the Bolskin Cemetery. Legend has it that the church was destroyed when it suddenly caught fire during service. The fire not only destroyed the building, but took the lives of the entire congregation. It's said that the fire was a direct result of a curse. Legend has it that a powerful magician once resided in the area, one who had mastered the abramelin and was also a practitioner of necromancy. One night, the magician had achieved what had been believed impossible and had managed to reanimate the corpses of the Bolskin Cemetery. And though his intentions for doing so remain unknown, the magician's efforts were thwarted, or at least interrupted, by the church's minister, Thomas Houston. While the minister was partaking in the grim task of reburying the still writhing corpses, the magician put a curse on the minister and his church. Now, whether or not any part of that legend has any grain of truth to it, the Bolskin graveyard is still a part of the property. And for Crowley, it was another aspect of the property which made it so perfect for his undertakings. It's also where a great many of his other rituals took place during those years that the property was under his ownership. In 1899, Crowley barricaded himself in the Bolskine house and began preparations for the ritual. The ritual itself required weeks of fasting and intensive meditation. And after those weeks of preparation were completed, it was time to move on to the strenuous six-month-long ritual. A ritual which required hours of uninterrupted practice, seven days a week for six straight months. It required an amount of dedication that few were able to commit to. It entailed a complete lifestyle change, full of restriction and, and abstinence. All things 
which wouldn't seem at all up Crowley's alley. However, these were indeed sacrifices that he was willing to make, as Crowley was intent on contacting his guardian spirit and gaining access to the powers that provided. The first phase of the ritual went as planned, and according to Crowley, he was able to make contact with the higher being and was given instructions on which demonic entities he was to summon and bind. It was the second phase of the ritual that proved to be troublesome. The forces summoned proved to be stronger than even Crowley had anticipated. According to his own accounts, he struggled to bind what had been summoned. Those with him at the time recalled strange happenings. The interior of the house would become cold and pitch black, even though outside it was a warm and sunny late summer's day. Strange voices were heard, and odd, shadowy figures were seen flitting about in the cemetery. These things didn't seem to get past the locals either. Many reported a darkness that seemed to come over the area, and others reported seeing strange and otherworldly-looking beasts prowling at night. As the rumors spread, many became fearful and petitioned for the magician's forcible removal from the land. When word got back to Crowley about the distress that he was causing the locals, he doubled down on his summoning and binding efforts, as if he was egged on by an air of rebelliousness. He continued on with the ritual daily until the fourth month. Whether out of exhaustion or boredom, Crowley abruptly ended the ritual and headed back to Paris to meet with his friend and former teacher, Mathers. It's believed that many, including those at the time who were close to him, that Crowley failed to send back that which he summoned, and that he had left an opening for all manner of things from that realm to creep in. Crowley remained in ownership of the Bolskin house for about 12 more years, and he was said to have attempted many other summoning and binding rituals there. However, it became clear that his failed attempt at the Abramelin and what it had brought forth had left an obvious scar on the house and surrounding property. From then on, the Bolskin property seemed to breed madness, misfortune, and even murder. In his journal, Crowley would record some of the odd occurrences in the home which he felt were the direct result of the failed ritual. In one entry, Crowley states, One day, I came back from shooting rabbits on the hill 
and found a Catholic priest in my study. He had come to tell me that my lodge keeper, a total abstainer for 20 years, had been raving drunk for three days and had tried to kill his wife and children. I got an old Cambridge acquaintance to take Rosher's place, but he too began to show symptoms of panic and fear. Crowley later recounted other strange incidences where those in his presence seemed overtaken suddenly by madness. A local man he had hired to do some general labor went mad within three days of hire and was thrown into such a powerful fit of rage that he attempted to take Crowley's life. Some weeks later, while visiting the local butcher shop, Crowley claimed that upon reading the written list provided to him, the butcher suddenly slipped into the same fit of madness as the man he had hired weeks before. The butcher began screaming at him, spatting out curses, and then began convulsing with laughter, during which the butcher grabbed his knife he laid his left hand down on the table and while still laughing, swung the knife down upon his wrist, severing his own hand. Crowley, certain the string of madness was a warning and perhaps penalty for the failed ritual, he ran back to his home and set about attempting to right his wrong. Crowley is often portrayed as a man of diabolical nature. But the Abramelin ritual was done in the purest of intent. It was not a dark ritual. It's based on Kabbalah. In fact, Crowley was deeply concerned about the darkness that he believed he had brought about. And he worked tirelessly for quite some time in attempts to contain it. His concerns are reflected in a journal entry where he states, Besides these effects on the human minds, there were numerous physical phenomena for which it is hard to account. While I was preparing talismans, squares of vellum inscribed in India ink, a task which I undertook in the sunniest room of the house, I had to use artificial light even on the brightest of days. It was a darkness which might almost be felt. The lodge and terrace, moreover, seemed to become peopled with shadowy shapes. And yet the truth is, they were no shapes, properly speaking. The phenomenon is hard to describe. It was as if the objects of vision were not properly objects at all. It was as if they belonged to an order of matter which affected the sight without informing it. Perhaps unnerved by these odd forces which he struggled to control, Crowley would spend less and less time at his Loch Ness home. He spent a short time living in New York, then he moved on and spent some years in Egypt. It was here 
where Crowley claimed to have once again attempted the Abramelin, this time claiming success. It was here that he was supposedly given the direction and guidance to found the Thelema, whose Greek-inspired name means to will, wish, want, or purpose. After his purported success in Egypt, Crowley found he now had little use for his home in Loch Ness, and in 1913 put the property up for sale. It's unclear whether any of the future residents had any knowledge of the property's past before purchasing it, but each future resident seemed to experience the darkness which seemed to shroud the property. Over the years, the property would change hands numerous times, each time bringing about misfortune for those who resided in it. For years, the house was home to madness, cruelty, and death. Despite the misfortune the home seemed to bring, many wealthy and prominent individuals over the years have found themselves drawn to it. Now, not much is known about the first few residents who moved in after Crowley, only that the property seemed to change hands frequently, as if no one ever wanted to stay for long. Then, in 1960, the house was purchased by Major Edward Grant. And like in some of the earlier tales, the Major, too, began to descend into madness. The Major eventually shot himself in the master bedroom, the very same room where Crowley, all those years before, had performed the failed Abra Mellon ritual. After the Major's death, the house sat abandoned for 15 years. It became a favorite spot for occult practitioners and the curious to visit. Those who were brave enough to visit the now decrepit manor during that time claimed to have witnessed a frightening array of mysterious phenomena. They claimed to see odd flashes of light inside, as if someone were flipping a light switch on and off. There were odd shadowy figures that seemed to pace about inside, windows that would spontaneously shatter, and there were claims of strange voices, as if there were large groups of people talking inside of the abandoned building. By 1970, the Baliskin house was in a sad state. It had suffered vandalism, arson, and general degradation brought about by neglect. It was quite a sad mess, a mere shell of its former self. But once again, the house found a new owner, and by 1975, it had been purchased by rock legend Jimmy Page. 
Now, Page was a longtime fan of Crowley's work, and it was a large influence on much of the cover art and lyrics of Led Zeppelin. Page had purchased the house in hopes of renovating it and restoring it to its former glory. And though he invested a significant amount of money and care into restoring the home, he spent very little time at it due to his rigorous recording and touring schedule. To ensure that the home would not once again fall victim to vandals, Page invited friend Malcolm Dent to reside in it and look after the property in his absence. Now Dent, even though he was aware of the property's grim history, was excited to move into this beautiful home. He was not one to buy into supernatural or occult, and he prided himself on being a staunch skeptic. However, unbeknownst to him, his skepticism was about to be challenged. Now at first, all was well with Dent's residency in the home, and he spent several calm weeks on the premises. But it wasn't long before the home began revealing its true nature and began terrorizing Dent. It all began with strange noises at night. Heavy footsteps could be heard plodding through the halls. Doors would slam shut by themselves. And animal-like growls echoed through the home. Dent tried to find logical explanations for these happenings, but soon the activity in the house escalated to the point where he started to become legitimately afraid. He began seeing shadowy figures, started to hear strange voices, and then one night, something tried to attack him. One night, while sleeping in the master bedroom, that very room where Crowley attempted the Abramelin, Dent was awakened by a frightening noise. It sounded like some sort of large animal sniffing under the door. And as if it caught his scent, it began letting out a terrifying growl. As Dent sat frozen on his bed, the beast began clawing at the bedroom door as if it were trying to get in, as if it were trying to get to him. The ordeal went on for some time and then suddenly stopped. After a while, Dent was able to gather his courage and open the bedroom door. He expected to see large gashes on the outside. But instead, all was normal. There were no markings or any evidence at all that the night's terrifying ordeal had ever happened. But Dent knew that whatever had happened was not a figment of his imagination. And he knew that there was definitely something off about the house. 
When later asked about the home's seemingly strange paranormal activity, Jimmy Page was said to have confirmed that there was indeed some bad vibes associated with the property. However, he firmly believed that these bad vibes were not the result of Crowley himself, but a result of the property's older history. He cited the story about the church that had burst into flame, killing all in attendance, saying that the darkness was at play far before Crowley. 1991, the house was once again back on the market. And it had also, once again, fallen into a state of neglect. In 1992, it was purchased by the McGilvery family, who then invested quite a handsome amount into repairing and again restoring the home. But this time, for the next 10 years, the home finally seemed to be at peace. The family stated that they never once experienced anything negative or paranormal while living there. In 2002, once again, the home popped back up on the market. And once again, it became a very peaceful family home. And it remained as such for the next 13 years. But that all changed on December 23rd, 2015, when at 1.40 p.m., a passing motorist noticed smoke and flames bellowing from the famous home. By the time the fire department had arrived, over 60% of the house had been destroyed. And the flames at this point had reached over 20 feet in height. The fire crew put their efforts into saving the West Wing. However, in the end, most of the building was left in ruin. While it was determined that the fire started in the kitchen, the exact cause was never determined. And the Baleskin home was once again empty and once again spent the next few years subject to vandalism and in ruin. But when word got out that the house was set to be demolished, it was once again purchased in April of 2019. The buyer had intended to preserve the house and garden, restoring them to their original form, turning this home into a historical monument. However, rumors circulated that the new owner intended to use the house for dark rituals, which absolutely cannot have been any farther from the truth. And once again, the house was victim to vandalism and arson. The latest fire, which occurred in late July of 2019, destroyed most of the remaining roof structure, as well as most of the remaining interior contents. The house has been devastated. Now, whether or not you are a fan of Crowley, and despite your feelings about what may have went on inside of that home, 
during those years. You cannot argue the centuries-old history this property has. Now, the good news is the current owner is still intent on rebuilding and renovating this historical building. But since the latest fire, they're asking for the public's help. If you're interested in helping them and donating to the cause, there is a link to their GoFundMe page on our website. If you go to our website's homepage, you'll see a link way at the top, big picture, that is for this episode. If you click on that, at the bottom, there will be a link where you can click to go to the GoFundMe page. It's no wonder that Loch Ness is seen as such an odd and magical place. It's a place that's steeped in an odd history and steeped in paranormal lore. What do you think about Crowley's influence on Loch Ness? Do you think part of the modern Nessie lore came about from that ritual he performed at his Loch Ness home? If Nessie is real, do you think it could very well be something that was brought about by that supposed portal opened by Crowley? <laughs> 